0: be a Christian is to be a disciple and to be a disciple is to learn Jesus's own way that he models and that he teaches of how to inhabit the world because that way alone promises the true human flourishing why because it's in accord with reality it's who God is and this is the the genius of all philosophies especially the true one, Christianity, is that if you try to live against nature, if you try to live against reality, it will
1: never work. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast. Where Doctrine Matters and Theological Ideas Have Consequences, here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where Doctrine Matters and Theological Ideas Have Consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever thought through the relationship between philosophy and Christianity? It seems like more and more on the Credo Podcast, this is a topic that has become so relevant and so important to how we understand everything from big ideas we talk about to even the Bible itself. One of the relationship uh, mysteries, if we could call it that, between Christianity and philosophy is... Well, this uncomfortable tension that we sometimes feel as Christians, well-meaning, of course, but this uncomfortable tension we sometimes feel between Christianity and philosophy as if the two are at odds with one another. I find that so odd because if you understand what philosophy is about, at least philosophy as it was articulated by the ancients, If you understand what it was really about, well, at its heart, it is about the love for wisdom. The love for wisdom, and not only that, but a love for wisdom that uses the mind as well as the heart to understand the big ideas. Who is God? Uh, What is this world that we are living in, and how do the two relate to one another? In this quest for wisdom— this knowledge that is trying to seek more and more understanding. Well, this quest not only leads to knowledge, but it actually leads to really personal and consequential ideas that affect the life of the human person. Ideas such as human flourishing, for example, or what it means to know and to actually live and seek the good, the true, and the beautiful. As you can tell, philosophy then, well, on second thought, it has a lot to do with Christianity. What's also so strange is that not only do we have this uncomfortable tension at times between philosophy and Christianity, a tension of our own making, one that feels a bit artificial, but because of that tension, we really have no category for Jesus himself as a philosopher. This, too, is strange because we love to talk about Jesus as our high priest, we love to talk about Jesus as our king, but we don't often think through what does it mean for Jesus to be prophet, for example? What does it mean for Jesus to even speak to issues like wisdom or the way of wisdom? We talk about things like covenants and we talk about concepts like the kingdom, but we often don't think of Jesus talking about king and kingdom or the way uh, of, of wisdom in terms of, well, Jesus, the philosopher. So often this category is missing, but I think it's actually an essential category to understanding who Jesus is, why he came, and what his teaching has to do and why it's so significant for the Christian life. It's for these reasons that I have asked Jonathan Pennington to come on the Credo podcast to talk to us about what wisdom and philosophy and flourishing, what all of this has to do with the Christian life, and whether we should even think about Jesus as a philosopher himself, perhaps the greatest philosopher of all time. Well, you may know Jonathan Pennington from many of his books. He is professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also pastor of spiritual formation at Sojourn East. And, well, he is quite prolific. Uh, Many of his books include uh, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, Reading the Gospels Wisely. Uh, Not that long ago, he released a book called Reading the New Testament as Christian Scripture. And, of course, one of his, his most recent books. Jesus, the great philosopher, rediscovering the wisdom needed for the good life. Jonathan, thank you for joining me on the Credo podcast.
0: It's a joy to be here. I love all those things you said in your (laughs) intro. That was all great and very stimulating. Thank you.
2: Well, I hope (laughs) I've set uh, us up well for this conversation. And I have to admit, uh, I I am am a bit excited about it because uh, this is an opportunity to talk about two loves of mine, uh, not only Christianity, but in, in the Christian scriptures, which you have thought so much about, but Christian philosophy as well. But before we get there, I have to take a, take a step back and, and just make this general observation. You are uh, a professor of New Testament, and here you are. I, I, I almost can't even say it. Uh, here you are writing a book on philosophy, in a sense— and uh if if I can just uh say to our listeners for a minute one of the opening chapters of this book Jesus the Great Philosopher is called the Genius of Ancient Philosophy I just have to say Jonathan I I opened it I put it down and I just thought I must I must be misunderstanding something because in my experience uh biblical scholar- scholars don't ever write on philosophy uh, or if philosophy comes up it's more or less well what in the world would that have to do with the bible or, or or the new testament or christianity. So I just I just have to know what what exactly has happened in the in the life story of Jonathan Pennington uh that uh that, that this would would even uh, occur. <laughs>
0: That's funny. Well, I hope you picked it back up after you put it down. So I did. Good. It sounds like you did. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, what has occurred? So many things. I mean, that's it's a great question. I mean, part of it is that I am, I am a lateral thinker. I mean, I'm, I just like a lot of different things. You know. So even though my training's in New Testament and and the Gospels, and I do a lot of Work in that. I really, I just love all kinds of different things. Um, but, but you know, in this case, philosophy. I guess this is kind of the point. Philosophy is not actually a separate study from the Bible. That's kind of the point I'm trying to make in the mm. book is to invite people to see the Bible itself as a work of ancient philosophy. Of course, we have to redefine or define what philosophy means because I know that sounds like a weird statement. And similarly, to see Jesus Himself as a philosopher. So, um, you know, how did I come to it? Well. So many influences. I think Steve Martin was way up there, you know, with me. (laughs) As I talk about, you may recall in the book, um, you know, just, I so remember as a kid, uh, you know, listening to Steve Martin, He's very intelligent, interesting, you know, stand up comic and playwright and everything and him talking about philosophy, you know, in kind of a joking way. And, uh, but even though he has a graduate degree in philosophy himself, so, you know, mostly joking here, but that, you know, he, there is that influence on me. Yeah people talking about philosophy but also especially in the modern period what i came to see is that philosophy gets a bad rap (laughs) you know like uh when i think you think about the philosophy in the new testament most people probably just think of colossians that says you know do not be deceived or taken captive by empty philosophy you know Mm -hmm. and that's that's about the only verse we think of when we think of the new testament um or as you well know from your area of study the way that uh, people often wrongly criticized the church fathers for being too philosophical, you know, too influenced by Greek philosophy and not the Bible or something. And, and all, all those, you know, I think are missteps. Those are misunderstandings of what was really going on in the Bible and what was really going on with philosophy. So I guess the last thing I'll say and answer that is this book really is kind of the next step for me after the work I had done on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's probably the most direct mm. reason it happened uh, is because I spent many, many years teaching the Sermon on the Mount and eventually writing a book about it. And in the process of that, I mean, it was a process of recognizing that I had no idea what I was doing. I was way over my head when I came to studying this greatest of all Christian texts, uh-huh. the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew five, and so I quickly began, realized I needed to give myself an education in ethics or moral theology, as I would prefer to call it. And I and I had to then give myself a a little education, a self education in ancient philosophy because a lot of the terminology and a lot of the vision. I came to see of the Sermon on the Mount is very much speaking into and using the same language that other ancient philosophers like Aristotle and others did, and so I it just really that that's the direct you know influences that I this is the extension of of over a decade of of really just giving myself to the study of of the Sermon on the Mount and then realizing it I needed to expand. Uh, that study to the whole Bible to talk about Jesus as a philosopher and the Bible as a philosophy.
2: Yeah, you know what you just said. Uh, I and I do want to get to this later because uh, when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, um, probably for the average listener out there, there uh, words that might come to mind are, are words like virtue or ethics or kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what's so strange is that uh, in our contemporary scene. All of those words and seem to be somehow uh, dislocated from philosophy. Uh, but but as you're saying that that wasn't always the case. In fact, uh, those,
0: those are all philosophical terms. That's right. <laughs> Ethics, that, that's virtue, right. and kingdom kingdom is as well. I mean, this is mm. you read Plato's Republic, you read uh, Aristotle. Th- this is the politics that you know. It's it's all about that. A big part of philosophy is thinking about how to structure society and how leaders need to be people of virtue, right? And wisdom and philosophy and so that's all connected. Yeah, it's amazing.
2: It is amazing. And maybe we could begin our conversation uh, by set, setting up some of our listeners to understand, you know, what what exactly is happening with ancient philosophy. Uh, I, now, I mean, obviously we we don't have time to go into a full history here you know, looking at Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Uh, that, that's for a, a, another podcast, another time. But uh, you say something that I think is so on target uh, in your chapter called The Genius of Ancient Philosophy, where you talk about how philosophy for the Greeks was not, you know, we often think of it this way, as if, oh, they're just speculating and playing around with words and Actually, you make a, a very astute point here that, no, they understood philosophy as a way of life, and, and you, you hinted at that uh, just a minute ago. In other words, for them, for, for these ancient philosophers, well, philosophy was a whole life vision, uh, one that had a lot to do with human flourishing, and For them, that meant, well, it really gave them a license then to talk about everything from uh, the the big questions about metaphysics, what does it mean to exist, for example, to uh, epistemology, uh, not only what we know, but how do we know it, uh, even to uh, ethics, uh, what does it mean to be a wise person, and and what does it mean to live in a, a way that is flourishing? So let's start there. How does this? Uh, In in your own uh, research and and as you started to write about, you know, what is philosophy to begin with, how did this change your perspective on not just ancient philosophy, but what we might call uh, Christian philosophy?
0: Yeah, that, that was such a great journey for me. I learned so much in those years and, you know, looking back, I'm sure you've experienced this too. I, I can't remember which books I read in which order or which ones were like the turning point of my mind, but I can think of a bunch of things I read that were really helpful. Like, uh, God and the Art of Happiness by Alan Cherry Mm. from Princeton was one of them, but especially Pierre Adot's book, What is Ancient Philosophy? I read that, and that really was a game changer for me to understand. Uh, He was a French scholar who was a scholar of ancient philosophy, and his argument in that book and other books is that just this, that we've misunderstood in the modern period, we've misunderstood philosophy as if it was just this abstract, esoteric, Uh, you know, meaningless speculation, which is what most of us experience. Like I went to a state university for undergraduate and I remember philosophy 103 class, you know, 101 was logic. That's fine. 103 was basically ancient philosophy or what is philosophy? And it was, you know, questions of, if I leave the room, does this chair still exist? How do I know that? Right. You know, and <laughs> which, are, which are fine questions. I mean, it's fine. But, you know, you don't that class isn't like helping you figure out how to handle your emotions or how society should be structured or what do I do about a, a relationship or yeah. you know, friendship or anything. It was all speculative. And so the problem is that is what a lot of modern philosophy became. And so when we look back, we don't, we assume that that's what's going on with Aristotle and others, but it, it's not what they were doing. They speculate on stuff only for the purpose of super practical living. Yeah. How do you actually live well? And so once I saw that, and that was a journey of, you know, a couple of years probably of reading a lot in that area, it would just, it was such a turning point in my mm. mind. Like, oh, and then I felt like I could see. That the Bible's doing the same thing, of course, I believe, in the, in the true and ultimate and you know, inspired sense, in a way that Aristotle and others are not. But they're asking the same. The Bible's asking and answering the same questions right. that they're really universally humans have asked in yeah. every religion, every philosophy. How do you find true life? Yeah, and that that's a really helpful category, I think, to think about the Bible. And and it was really ancient philosophy that helped me see the Bible in that way, you know, that's, that's the kind of irony of it.
2: You know, at one point uh, you, you make this observation where you, you say, you know, as you were exploring the love of wisdom, you know, as it, as it was called, uh, you noticed that, well, for so many of these ancient philosophers, uh, physics and metaphysics, I mean, today, these, these two things are just worlds apart um, and, and sometimes even competing and set against each other. But for many of these ancient philosophers that was not the case uh physics and metaphysics were uh, related to one another and like you mentioned extremely practical uh now there's probably lots of reasons uh we could we could list to explain why that was the case but but one of them was because they saw goodness everything from education as as educating the whole person uh mm-hmm. to the whole person finding fulfillment and happiness in life by by searching for for that which is ultimately good uh, or, or or beautiful. So, talk to us a little bit about this because when we when we describe philosophy, uh, just like you were saying with your own experience as a student, well, that's so different than the ancient philosophers who seem to to define philosophy even as uh, a spiritual exercise, as some might mm-hmm. even call it a therapy for the soul. What? W- why mm-hmm. would they describe it that way?
0: Yeah, yeah. Those are both interesting phrases you chose to use, because another Fierdo's book is called, I think it's called Spiritual what is it called? I just lost it. But it's basically something along those lines when he describes philosophy as this kind of spiritual formative practice, Or I also think of Martha Nussbaum a, a great intellect from university of Chicago, who famously describes ancient philosophy as the therapy of desire mm. because it deals a lot with emotions and deals a lot with how to process what it means to be human and how to live well in light of that. So those are, um, you know, those are just a few things that come to mind, but now in saying those, I forgot what your question was. What was your
2: question? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's not unrelated to what you just said, right? Because um, I mean, so so think about even you know those titles, right? The therapy of desire or spiritual, uh, a spiritual formative outlook on life. Um, it seems like uh, whether it's Socrates or Aristotle or or Plato before him, they seem to even though uh, they don't have, you know, what we have, the full revelation um, of Scripture and and all of what that means, nonetheless, they understand that they exist uh, in in order to know something beyond themselves. In other words, they they believe in something that transcends just what they see with their eyes. Uh, They believe in something that's ultimately good or the good, and they seem to also understand, well, this actually is a is a type of contemplation that's not just merely cognitive for you know the sake of knowledge, but but actually a, a type of spiritual exercise itself that really has consequences for the destiny, the destiny of the soul. So uh you know, when we think of it that way, well, that actually, I think, redefines philosophy uh, in a way that is far more comprehensive. Would you describe Mm -hmm. it that way? Is, is, you know, this vision of life is more comprehensive.
0: Yeah. It's a vision for all of life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, you know, and that's the, that was the dilemma I faced over the last of the couple of years of actually writing this book and teaching this, like, can we, can we redeem the word philosophy, (laughs) right? Can we fix it? Because today, (laughs) you know its roots as you point out our love of wisdom so it's built right into that i mean and the ancient practice and actually all the way through the medieval period mm-hmm. uh it's it is still understood as a whole way of life i'm i just reading again Erasmus's paraphrases which are these um a the genre that we don't really have anymore we call it a paraphrase but one of the things Erasmus did uh the flowering of his scholarly life was he wrote these um retellings these translations of the bible that included both like it's like a translation of the bible that is kind of like an amplified bible that also gives like commentary built into it and most people haven't seen them they're very interesting yeah. but i'm just thinking of like how he describes the sermon on the mount when he's doing his paraphrase of matthew 5 he says you know and the lord went up on the mountain and taught the the true philosophy of life for all people, you know. So that's already you know 16th century. They're still thinking of philosophy in this way of life sense. And so the question for me, as I saw this uh, and see that the word philosophy doesn't mean that now, like is this word redeemable? You yeah. know, should I can I sell a book that has philosophy in the title? <laughs> um, that, that was one of the concerns, not the main one, but and I decided, you know what? I want to redeem this word. I, I want to yeah. try to rediscover uh, redeemed, sorry, too strong a language, but I want to kind of retool this word to its ancient sense, yes. uh, and try to help us recover this because it's such an important reality. Uh, and you know, there's other worlds, there's other words you could kind of use. I think of like worldview. Mm. Um, I think of like Jamie Smith's language of like liturgies or you think of Charles Taylor's, uh uh, kind of vision of, of a whole life philosophy as well that you know has influenced um, social imaginaries. That's the phrase I was looking for. Okay. So there's lots of other terms we could use: social imaginary, philo- uh, worldview. Um, you know, I, I I can't think of any of those off the top of my head. But the point is, we have different ways. But I have decided I think philosophy is worth using and worth kind of yes. reclaiming as a kind of comprehensive vision of life and that's what you know i'm trying to
2: do with that well i'm so glad that you did uh and that you didn't give up on that word philosophy i know (laughs) i know exactly what you mean in terms of you know marketing and all that and and sometimes that can be a a big of a bit of a a tug of war but but uh yeah redeeming or or retooling how however you want to say it uh uh, it, it not only uh gives us a better picture of ancient philosophy, but it also helps us understand what's happening in in the Christian scriptures themselves. So so let's mm-hmm. go there. I mean you've mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. Uh maybe we could uh either focus on the Sermon on the Mount or or maybe even zoom out and just talk about uh Jesus in the New Testament. Of course, I mean, for the sake of time, we're not talking uh we're we're <laughs> We're skipping over the Old Testament, but, but of course, so much of what we're seeing here in the New Testament is coming out of the Old Testament. Uh, you frame, uh, very helpfully, uh, you, you pick up on those those philosophical categories, metaphysics, you know, what is the true nature of the universe? How does the world work? Epistemology, how do we know things? Ethics, what is right? How do we live that out? Even politics, how, how do we structure uh, society and, and institutions in the best and wisest ways? So if we use those categories, uh, make a little case here for, you know, maybe the, those listening out there may be thinking, well, you know, okay, philosophy, but I'm not so sure about calling Jesus a philosopher. <laughs> uh, yeah. how, using these categories, can we actually think of Jesus as a philosopher?
0: Yeah, that's so great. Thanks. Um, you know, I think it would be worth saying a little bit about the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, because this yes, was do. one of the... This, <laughs> Yeah, this was one of the turning points for me uh, as I kind of think back over the years of evolution of thought was uh, Yoram Hazoni, who's an Israeli scholar, his book, The Philosophy of the Hebrew Scriptures, is Cambridge University Press book. You know, there's things obviously I disagree with in there in terms of his understanding of Christianity, but uh, in terms of his argument that he makes that the Hebrew scriptures really are presenting themselves and are worthy of being called a a philosophy of whole life uh, on these issues that they're providing a political vision of how society should be structured. They're providing, um, you know, an ethic. Obviously, Torah is very much about that. They're providing a a vision of human flourishing or shalom would be the Old Testament word for that, basically. So that, that was one of the turning points for me to realize, oh my goodness, you know, this really... This makes so much sense of the richness and the beauty of what's going on in the Old Testament. It's very much offering to the ancient Near Eastern world a very complex and nuanced and insightful Mm. way of thinking about what humans are, where the world came from how to structure relationships, what is the good. I mean, you start thinking from Genesis one, you know, like in my church right now, we're preaching a series on Genesis one and two, and which is such a joy to think about, um, you know, so many things going on in those chapters, but it is a metaphysic. In other words, it is providing an anthropology. Mm. It's providing a, uh, a, a a doctrine of the what is the substance of the world and how did it come into being mm-hmm. which is exactly what all ancient people had they had narratives of creation they had narratives of you know what is the nature of reality whether it's atomic or you know atomic structure or you know four elements or whatever every every person modern or ancient has a metaphysic thought through or not about what is the nature of reality. And once you sort of go to the Bible with that question, you're like, oh my goodness, it's got like a very specific, right. very thoughtful and nuanced understanding of how the world came into being mm. and what humans are. And, and it's just, it's really beautiful. So for me, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament was one of the big, uh, understanding that as a, as a philosophy of full life, including these big categories of philosophy, that was a real turning point. And that's where this set up to then, once you get to the new Testament, it's actually not surprising, um, that, you know, Jesus as the fulfillment and the, you know, the, the apex, uh, the image of God in the second Adam incarnated, uh, that he's going to, you know step right into that same line and be and and be the truth teller of what is the nature of reality and you get these amazingly metaphysical statements in the New Testament as well that nobody expected like Colossians one again that all things came into being through him, and all mm-hmm. things hold together through him that's a that's a very that's not just the sort of flowery statement about Jesus' divinity that's a metaphysical statement that's Mm -hmm. saying you want to know how the universe actually operates it is even that is found in jesus christ let alone obviously an ethic there's plenty of ethics in the new testament and plenty of epistemology as well how do you know things you know, through the revelation that is granted by God. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question, but I guess there's more we could say about the New Testament, but I just want to start to say the whole Bible is trafficking in these absolutely central human questions of the nature of reality, the good, how do we know things? And it it was just, it's once you got to see the Bible that way, it doesn't, diminish in any way it's theological claims or that's other claims we are used to thinking of it actually enriches and enhances and makes you see the bible even more beautifully than before to see it's it's also dealing with all these great human questions
2: you know you mentioned i think it was colossians 1 if i remember right yeah um where paul there is is talking about uh, the Son of God. He's the, the image of the invisible God, the f- the firstborn over all creation. And and what's so uh, revealing is is what he says next, right? That in Him all things were created, and then he goes on to say that all things have been created through Him and for Him. Uh, in in yeah. philosophy, uh, well, I think Paul here is being quite the philosopher because. Uh, in philosophy, he's he's not just talking about okay, what is the first cause or or what is the efficient cause? Here, he's even getting into the telos. What is what is the final cause here? What's okay. the end the the end purpose here? And and in Colossians one, to say, well, it's it's not only being created through him, but but for him. That is <laughs> that is a a deep philosophical statement. And like you yeah. said, uh, that's so right uh, because then it puts everything else into perspective when we're talking about well how did this world come into being and uh who did that and and then what is this world uh which which of course uh you know we see in a passage like uh colossians 1 but i imagine uh you would say well do we also see this in say uh john 1 where uh, you know, I know that sometimes Christians get a bit uh, nervous thinking about, well, you know, is there any way that uh, the Greeks and Greek thought could have had anything to do with Christianity? And a lot of times Christians get nervous at that point and say, oh, surely not. But uh, w- maybe you could speak to this for a minute because in John 1, this, this whole concept of, of uh, the uh seems to say something about not just who Jesus is, but but eventually um, in in John and the rest of the Gospels, even about what he's come to do and and the kingdom of God.
0: Uh, it's so beautiful, yeah. John one, wow. I feel you know rightly intimidated to say anything about John one. This you know, <laughs> jo, jo, you know, the Gospel of John, according to all the church fathers, that you know, you think Origin and Bonaventure later and all kinds of people, they all said basically the same thing that. You know, if the Gospels are the first fruits of the Bible, which is what they all understood, John is the first fruits of the first fruits. Ah. You know? <laughs> so, so John, John is the you know the apex. It's the eagle that's soaring over all of the mm. Bible. Is how, it's, how it was understood from the beginning. So, John one is a, is lofty of a as a of a little passage as you could imagine, but it is very significant that the word logos which we translate as word which is fine but it's that that word logos is really central to it and and I think the shortest way I could say it the quickest way I could say it is that what John 1 does it simultaneously speaks to and from the Hebrew world and to and from the Greek world it's like this perfect moment of the 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 true God of the Bible revealing himself through the Jewish Messiah, you know, the Messiah who is an ethnic Jew, who is fulfilling the promises to ethnic Israel, that that is, Christianity is through the Jews to the world, and John 1 is such a perfect combination by using Lagos, because the, the Hebrew side of Lagos, that is the, the Old Testament story, is that God is, speaks his creation in the being, or mm. even sings, as a lot of uh, Hebrew scholars would suggest, that, that that this is an image of God singing, uh, but it's definitely with his voice. And so the, the word is... You know, to talk about Jesus being the Word of God in this kind of spoken sense is tapping obviously into the Genesis story. After you know, as you well know, it begin in the beginning in both Genesis one one and John one one is not an accident. And at the same time, to call Jesus the Logos taps into the great philosophical tradition. That the logos is the structure of the universe. It's the how things are put together and how things hold together. So you see, I'm sure the moment John thought of that way of describing it, he said, "Yes, that is it." (laughs) To describe Jesus as the logos is like this perfect way of both affirming the the Hebrew creation account and speaking right into the. Uh, the Greek world that he's living in. And then, you know, as it goes along, once he gets down into the latter verses, he says the shocking thing that this logos became flesh. Mm. And that's where the craziness of Christianity (laughs) comes in. Because as I like to say, Christianity is an equal opportunity offender to both Jews and Greeks. And there's one of its there's one of its greatest moments of offense because neither a Jewish person would be happy with saying that God became flesh, nor would a Greek be happy with saying the Logos became a person, right? (laughs) So this is the, this is the crazy genius because it's true of, of uh, Christianity that's rooted in the incarnation of God Mm. himself uh, as the Logos. So of course there's a million more things that we could say about John one, but that's my uh, stab at it.
2: Well, I appreciate you you uh really working through those fine points because uh every time I read John one I think, goodness, no wonder so many volumes uh have been written here. Uh it, it is it is absolutely rich uh in so many uh different contexts. Now now, you know, you here we're talking about um uh, metaphysics, but uh when we are talking about Jesus as a philosopher, and again, like you pointed mm-hmm. out, this is not coming out of nowhere. This is this is right. actually deeply rooted uh, in in the way that uh, the Hebrew Scriptures present us with a philosophy for all of life. So, in in that vein, though, if we transition from metaphysics to ethics, a, a, mm-hmm. and here we we really start to see how this philosophy. Uh, begins to to take form uh in in life real life as we might call it well uh, you make you make actually a fascinating point because as you're describing ethics and and what it means for example for the new testament and Jesus himself uh to to give us an ethic you use two words on the one hand you use uh, a word that comes out of the hebrew scriptures uh, imitative, and at the same time, you also draw our attention to the way that biblical ethics are agentic. Uh, can you describe each of these, and and maybe pull us a little bit closer to to how these connect to say the Sermon on the Mount?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, good question. So. Uh, I'm just thinking of so many other things related to uh, to Jesus' philosopher as well, but uh, yeah. So I think the Jesus is inviting us to learn to inhabit the world in a certain way that will bring us the life that we long for. So you think it's gone ten ten? I'd come that you might have life and have it abundantly. When you and I think of that phrase in our modern parlance, we think he's just talking about heaven or something like, you know, eternal life. We translate in our minds to, you know, the, the future state or something. And it does include that. But that's a statement. From a a philosopher, that's a statement from a sage or a wise person. Or I might get a little cheeky from a guru. (laughs) You know, there's not the best. That was one for about five seconds. I thought about naming the book that Jesus the Guru, and I thought, no, that that might miscommunicate a little bit. But but the but the point is this: this Jesus's whole ministry is an invitation to learn to inhabit the world, to see and be in the world in a way that is going to promise life. Now that that's what we call virtue now the quick misunderstanding of that that we need to you know qualify especially as protestants but i think for all christians would want to say um you know that's not earning your favor with god to say god is you know the jesus is teaching us a way of inhabiting the world you're not earning our favor there's no way that we can get connected to god apart from a covenant that he has initiated and sustained that comes through the body the broken body and the spilled out blood of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, and his ascension. So, you know, that is for sure the groundwork, but you can't stop there. That's the, that's the foundation. That's the forming of a covenant between God and humanity and Jesus. But the actual teaching of Jesus, the actual being a Christian means being a learner, of a certain way of inhabiting the world. And that's what batete, so that's what disciple means. tuo means to be a learner, to gather around a philosopher, a sage, and learn his way of teaching. And that is largely ethical. Mm. That is, it's largely, here are the ways to treat other people. Here are the ways to relate to God. Here are the things that really matter. It's not just doing external. I think in Matthew chapter five and six, it's not just doing external things, but actually having a heart that is oriented toward the good, right? I mean, this is the whole point of Matthew five and six is that you could do a bunch of external stuff like not commit adultery and not kill someone and uh, give alms to the poor and pray. But if your heart is not actually oriented then it's not truly ethical. It's not truly good, or to use biblical language, it's not truly righteous, right? So I, I hope I've answered your question. I mean, there's a lot there, but the point is to be a Christian is to be a disciple. And to be a disciple is to learn Jesus's own way that he models and that he teaches of how to inhabit the world, because that way alone promises the true human flourishing. Why? Because it's in accord with reality. It's who God is. Mm. And this is the the genius of all philosophies, especially the true one, Christianity, is that if you try to live against nature, if you try to live against reality, it will never work. And so Jesus is saying, here's reality. The kingdom of God that I am bringing from heaven to earth is the true reality. So if you want to find life, you've got to live according to it. And that's mm. not earning favor, that's finding life. <laughs> yeah. That's the only way to find life is to be a disciple. So I hope that answered your question. You, there's a lot in there, what you said. But.
2: Yeah, so, so well put. Uh, it, at one point you say the purpose of the New Testament's ethical teachings, like those of its contemporary philosophy, can be summed up with one uh-huh. goal, to help humans, come into fullness of maturity to enter into what it means to be fully human. And then you say Christianity is offering the answer to what it means to mature into the fullness of humanity with Jesus as the prototype of the new humanity, the second and perfect Adam. I I love the oh, way so you put there. That. Yeah. yeah, there's so much good in there. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. no. Uh, feel free to to elaborate. I, I was just going to say uh, one of the things I, I I you know I really circled and highlighted that those sentences because you are simultaneously putting Jesus in that canonical perspective. Okay, first Adam, second Adam, and and then what is what does it mean for him to be this perfect Adam? Uh very very different than the first Adam and. And then based on that, which of course brings us into all conversation the conversation into all kinds of concepts, even like the idea of a covenant which you mentioned or a kingdom which which you mentioned earlier but then it also then raises the question okay well then if 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 this is true what is it what does that look like what does it what does it mean to to live in this way in in the way of this this covenant if we are in this new Adam, I, one of the ways that you talk about this is you say, "Well, you know, if 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 this is true, then uh, no wonder Scripture can speak of us as a new humanity." And I think at one point you bring up a passage like First Corinthians sixteen, where uh, Paul, for example, is is uh, you know here you know in the context of of Corinth, he's dealing with all, a whole a whole number of a very difficult ethical uh situations um some dealing with immorality some with you know the pragmatics of of church life in that culture but uh at one point paul says well be on your guard stand firm in the faith be courageous be strong do everything in love and and you go on to make a great point when you say well could could paul be tapping into here that greek idea um, that was so common. Uh, that has to do with with virtue, um, and and mm-hmm. I find this so so telling, right? Because uh, oftentimes, maybe especially in our Protestant traditions, we're a bit uh, hesitant to talk about virtue. Um, we love to talk about about faith, but but if we understand virtue correctly, I'm not sure that faith and virtue are. Are to be set against each other. So, so maybe you could touch here uh, on on this idea of virtue, and you know, if even whether it's in the context of the Sermon on the Mount or Paul to the Corinthians, how does this idea of virtue really, uh, really form a path to what the Bible means when it talks about everything from new humanity to human flourishing?
0: Yeah, boy, that's such a big, big topic as well. Uh... Yeah, and I, I can maybe kind of t- tie those together a little bit. In that virtue, you're right. We as Protestants have not done <laughs> not done a great job with virtue. It's not even really part of our vocabulary. It is no. part of mine, but I make it very intentionally made it so in the last you know decade of my life. But um, yeah, you know, there, we're two or of virtus, depending on your Latin pronunciation, uh, means it. it's it's from the word vir or weir, which means human. In other words, the, the idea of being virtuous means that you're living according to what it means to be truly human, where vice, most of our listeners maybe have never made the connection, I know I didn't for a long time, vice, the word vicious is part of that because what what the idea of vice is that you're being less than human. In other words, so that the vision is, this is not just a Christian idea, this is a Greek idea, but I think Christianity would affirm it uh, as well or speak the same way, is that to be virtuous is to enter into the fullness of what a human can and should be. To be viceful is to act like an animal. Basically, mm-hmm. it's to be subhuman, to not have the image. To use biblical language, to not be the kind of being that has the image of God stamped on them like an animal. So the you know so the the call to be virtuous again. I think our biggest problem as Protestants is that we're rightly very concerned about legalism, we don't want to you know start talking in terms of that you can just work hard at being a virtuous person and eventually get good enough to be accepted by god uh, obviously that's you know absolutely different than the bible's message, which says that we're dead we're sinful there's no hope apart from god's you know um, awakening us so but that's I think why we've lost this language of virtue is that we're so allergic uh, to any danger of legalism that we've only focused on that part that absolutely crucial part of the message that our covenant with god comes through his gracious um effecting of our new birth but again part of a covenant is that you do live according to it right and that that you um learn uh, to live in certain ways imperfectly, and there's always forgiveness and grace that is constantly bringing us back and and covering our sins. But but we are learning again a new way of inhabiting the world. And uh, I think once you you just think about the fruit of the Spirit, First Corinthians you mentioned. I think of like the Book of Philippians. It's, it's everywhere. Everywhere you turn, throughout the Gospels and the Epistles, you find exhortations towards virtue. I just think about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are virtuous behaviors is what they are. You think of Philippians, uh, whatever is true and good and beautiful, you know, think about these things. All those are, we, we need a, a way to talk in those ways that in no way in our minds conflicts with grace or conflicts with faith because they don't. They don't conflict at all. Those are different categories. Yeah. In fact, we could say that faith is a virtue. <laughs> yeah. in that sense, you know. Um so, yeah, I hope that's helpful. There's so much there. Uh, yeah. For me it it was really a turning point. It was really the sermon on the mount work again as I came to sort of see that the sermon on the mount was not contrary contra to Luther. The sermon on the mount was not just telling you how bad you were by giving you a high ideal that showed that you couldn't do it and therefore you need forgiveness. That's the kind of generalized Lutheran reading of the sermon. You realize that's not a sufficient reading of the sermon. The sermon is actually inviting us to live a different way. And so I had to wrestle with, okay, well, as a Protestant, how does that how does that fit with my understanding of faith and grace? And what I end up arguing at the end of that book is that, yeah, virtue and grace are not opposites. They're, they're two sides of one coin, or they're at least compatible they're not enemies at all mm.
2: such an important point, and I find myself more and more drawn to this because yeah, I think you're exactly right. Uh, this language of virtue seems to be lost wasn't always the case. Uh, you know when we look back uh, at the history of interpretation. Uh, or the history of, of theology, uh, it's there. And, and uh, you even have theologians devoting large sections um, in, in order to to really spell out what are these virtues and, and, and what do these have to do with the Sermon on, Mount, on the Mount. So, so such an important um, point that I think needs to be recovered today. Now, mm-hmm. you know, we've been talking here, we're, we've been moving you know, from metaphysics to ethics and talking about virtue. Uh, i think one thing that might uh though though i it's a, it's a very natural move but uh to those who aren't used to talking this way or or even engaging the, in these concepts they might be surprised to learn that oh, as you discuss jesus as a philosopher you naturally then turn to happiness uh what does it mean <laughs> to yeah. uh live the good life uh which uh, anyone who's studied the history of philosophy knows this is one of the central uh, questions that the ancient philosophers spent their life uh, exploring. Now, you you have this, uh, one of my favorite passages, uh, I was so glad when I saw this passage, you brought it up, it's in City of God by Augustine, and he says, it's the decided opinion of all who use their brains <laughs> that all men desire to be happy, you know, this is kind of Augustine's way of saying, you know, yeah. of duh. <laughs> of right, course, of course. But but the point he's making is so profound um because for many of the Greeks, uh this soul happiness, well, this was at the very core of human flourishing. So that that being said, of course Augustine is is saying this, this desire to be happy he's saying this uh, ultimately within the context of of who is god and and how our happiness is found in him but maybe you can uh, uh tease this out a little bit because if we understand everything that you just said about about virtue and how that's not contrary to faith does this lead us to an uh, to an understanding of happiness that well it it, it may be far more uh f- far more uh biblical in a sense than maybe so many of, uh, the, the pop culture, uh, paths to happiness that, that get thrown our way.
0: Oh yeah, man. There's So again, there's so, so much there. It's all such a great question. And, and so many, I've got like nine different ways I can try to approach <laughs> this going on in my head all at once. But, uh, you know, I'll just take a quick stab at several of them. The part of this came to me from studying the word Makarios uh, from the Beatitudes and the word Beatus in Latin means the same thing as Makarios. It means happiness or in maybe slightly better English now flourishing because it doesn't just mean a happiness in the sense of a temporary positive emotional state, but actually shalom, you know, like a a condition of uh, flourishing. So part part of how I came to this was studying the Sermon on the Mount again and recognizing that the word makarios that is translated in our English translations as blessed. That's not really the best translation because that kind of miscommunicates what the Beatitudes are doing. The Beatitudes are invitations to inhabit the world in a way that promises true human flourishing. That's what a Beatitude is. That's what a macarism is. A, a these things that are in Matthew five. So that, that's one way of getting at it. Another is, yeah, you think of Augustine, you think of Pascal, you think of Jonathan Edwards. I mean, you, you can find a quote from almost any thoughtful person to that same effect that we are all driven by what we think will best serve us. You know, the only people that are say the opposite of that are not very helpful people like Kant who yeah. would say that true ethics has no self interest, or mm. that if, if you get anything out of it, it is not good. Well, that's a nice idea. It's just totally opposite of what the Bible says. I mean, the Bible is constantly appealing to us on the basis of our greater good, yeah. right? Even Jesus, think of Hebrews. Why did he endure the cross and despise its shame? Because it was his duty and he got no self-interest out of it. No, it's so that for the joy set before him, right? You think of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount again, you think of Matthew 6, the constant appeal to us to do what is right is so that we will have a great, that we will have a reward in heaven. That is the opposite of altruism. That is the opposite of saying you should do what's right because it's your duty you know, suck it up and shut up. (laughs) It's the (laughs) opposite. He's constantly saying, um, even even the very sort of negative sense that you think of Christianity, take up your cross and suffer. Why? Because you're going to find life. You're going to find true life. So even the appeal to take up your cross and suffer is not because it's what you got to do, deal with it. No, it's that that's the only way to find life is Mm -hmm. through death right so the the point is that happiness and ever flourishing is what god's goal for us is. We have it set in our hearts, we long to find peace we long to find shalom it is baked into our dna it's because that's how the world was made in genesis 1 and 2 it was a place eden means paradise it was a place of of delight eden as far as we can tell means delight it was a place you know seven times it says in the creation account he created he spoke it and said it was good which means both kind of moral goodness and aesthetic beauty. It was beautiful. It was good. And then when he creates on the sixth day of humanity, he looks and says, "It's very good." Mm. <laughs> you know. So that. So the point is the the goodness, the beauty, the flourishing. That's Genesis one and two. It's Revelation twenty one. You know, it's the beginning and the end of the story, and it's why it's set in our hearts. It's why we long for it. So why should we be surprised that Jesus comes and he offers true happiness. He offers true flourishing. The twist is that it only comes through death. Mm. It only comes through his own death and then through us learning to die, to suffer and in faith, just as he did, and to take up our cross and to die to self on a daily daily basis. So, So that emphasis, we're good at Christianity, suffering, death, cross, we're good at that. But what we often forget is the whole point of that is life. The point of that is not suffering for its own sake. The point of the cross is not the cross for its own sake. The point of the cross is the resurrection that creates a new creation. The point of the of suffering is that death brings us to the end of ourselves, that we might find the life that we truly long for. So I'm just trying to help us rediscover, in both the Sermon on the Mount book and this book, help us rediscover that the end goal is life itself, and that we shouldn't be ashamed of that, and we should lean into that with joy because it's what we're made for.
2: We've been talking to Jonathan Pennington, Pennington, who is professor of New Testament interpretation at uh, Southern Seminary. He's also the pastor of spiritual formation at Sojourn East. Uh, So many of his books, I I, I just have to recommend them to our listeners, uh, reading the New Testament as Christian Scripture— uh, reading the Gospels wisely, but I really recommend uh, picking up uh, this book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life. Uh, just as Jonathan was saying a minute ago, uh, whether it's an Augustine uh, or, or so many of those who come after him, uh, this idea uh, of pursuing happiness, well, it's it's something that we shouldn't be embarrassed about. Uh, it's something that uh, actually should lead us uh, to God Himself, the One who is the source, the author, and the generous giver of life that is everlasting. Jonathan, thank you so much for for giving us some of this wisdom uh, that uh, is is absolutely philosophical in nature, but also. Uh, absolutely related to jesus thank you for sharing so much of this with us on the credo podcast today
1: oh it's been such a delight thank you so much for having me on now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com there you will find the latest issues of credo magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with dr matthew barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day be sure to subscribe to Credo podcast to join the conversation a conversation where doctrine matters